All right, you can turn in the Bible to Acts chapter 9. We have an exciting story to read today, and it's all tied up in our series, our walk through the whole book of Acts, asking, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do in us? What do you want to do within our lives, within our church? How do you want to guide us forward? So we read the book of Acts, which is the story of what happened after Jesus' resurrection. We read it as history, but we're also reading it to discover what our lives should be like. What does Jesus want to do in us? How does the Holy Spirit work through us? And what, what can we expect as Jesus' followers who are saying yes to him? What can we expect to have happen in our lives? The book of Acts is filled with amazing examples of that kind of life. So we read this and we say, Lord, would you do in our time what we see happening in that time? So chapter 9 picks up our narrative as the, as the Holy Spirit has been working in the church. The last few weeks we've learned that it started growing quite dramatically, but it also came under persecution, which started pushing people outside of the city of Jerusalem and into the countryside. As they went, they started sharing the gospel. And so the message about Jesus, the more it was being resisted, the more people were hearing about it, and the more the gospel was spreading, and the more communities were being opened up um, by the people who had to flee for their lives sometimes out of the area that was persecuted into new regions where they would say, well, well, let me tell you the good news about Jesus and what we've seen and what we've heard. So the message is spreading quickly. As the church is growing, there was one character who was growing in anger about all of this. His name was Saul. Okay, we, we met Saul in chapter 7 when Stephen was killed for being a Christian. Remember Stephen? He was the first person to give his life because he was a Christian. And it was, we'll, we'll review that situation here in just a few minutes, but Saul was there. Saul was approving of that killing. And, and between the time that Stephen was killed and the church started to grow, Saul just got more and more upset about the growth of Christianity and what he probably viewed as the perversion of the true faith and the things he'd always believed. Okay, so we pick up Saul's narrative in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. All right, that is how serious Saul is about shutting down the Christian movement. He sees, hey, the persecution is starting to spread people around. I have to go collect them and bring them back, and they're going to have to face justice, and we're going to stop this from happening. Uh, Damascus is pretty far away from Jerusalem, considering that they were traveling by foot where, wherever they went. Um, this is Saul actually extending the reach of the persecution out beyond what we would look at on a map and say are the border visit, borders of Israel up to Damascus, which is today what we call Syria. Okay? So Saul is intent on shutting down the Christian movement. Well, verse 3. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice speaking to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. 
Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Okay, this is a serious intervention here. Would you not agree? I mean, Saul was not on track to finding the truth on his own. Uh, He was dead set on resisting Jesus. Jesus literally shined the light from heaven. I mean, this is like the lightning bolt of wisdom here coming to Saul. And Jesus doesn't even invite Saul, like, hey, Saul, I really want to get to know you. He says, Saul, you've been persecuting me. I have a plan for you. It's It's time for it to start. And so Saul here, obviously, is amazed, perplexed. He's knocked off of his horse. He's blinded by the light. And we see what happens next. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. His companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. What's interesting is although Saul was blind, this might be the first time in his life he ever actually saw, right? Because he finally saw the truth. Verse 10, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming and laying his hands on him so he can see again. Uh, But Lord, Ananias exclaimed, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. But you have to think, for Ananias, this is a big act of faith, right? He's going off of a vision of God telling him to go do this. If he's wrong, Saul's going to look up, and he's going to arrest Ananias, and he's going to head off to Jerusalem for trial. Brother Saul, Ananias said, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. And then he got up and he was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and he regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. So remember, Saul had all the training, like that Old Testament training could afford a person. He had all the puzzle pieces. The only thing he didn't have in his mind was that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. And as soon as that clicked, as soon as he saw the light, he became a strong witness for the gospel. In fact, what we see is the same level of intensity with which he was resisting Christianity. Now he's out promoting Christianity. And what do you think that stirs up? Well, that's a huge hornet's nest, right? Because you've got people on some fronts that are still afraid of Saul because they've heard of what he had just done and they knew he was there authorized to arrest them. You have other people who are afraid that Saul has now left their team, which he had, he switched sides. So you have all this kind of cauldron of you know, complexity happening and Saul gets himself immediately some death threats. Okay, we keep reading. 
It says, all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so that they could murder him, but Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. So that's yeah, a pretty action-packed night for the Apostle Paul. They're having to sneak out of the city. Little did he know, that was probably the lightest version of the things he would deal with in the future. Like he was heading into a life uh, that was literally going to be filled with excitement and terror and threat and all sorts of opportunity. And we'll read about that as we continue through the book of Acts. But Saul now is on the run. It says, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he'd truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some of the Greek-speaking Jews, but guess what? They tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Now remember, as we're reading Acts, we're, we're seeing little snapshots, snippets of like the timeline that's unfolding, but it's, it's way out of control at this point. There's no way to track what all the believers are doing. There's now thousands of people following Jesus. Hundreds of them are probably traveling across the countryside. Some of them are setting out on journeys to various cities, and now Saul is sailing to other ports. This is, this is starting to, this movement is starting to become a global movement here. Verse 32, meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place. He came to visit the believers in the town of Lydda, and there he met a man named Aeneas, for he had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your sleeping mat. He was healed instantly. And the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died, and her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda, so they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. Peter returned with them, and as soon as they arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes that Dorcas had made for them. Peter asked them all to leave the room, and he knelt there and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. She gave her his hand, and he helped her up. And then he called the widows and the other believers and presented her to them alive. The news of this spread through the whole town, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. Okay, so we'll catch Peter next week as he's staying at Simon's house and see how God uses that situation to unlock another big door for the gospel's expansion. But I don't know about you, as I read this, it feels like every verse is sort of filled with this excited anticipation of what the Holy Spirit is doing 
as the gospel is moving out. Okay, this is life as it was meant to be. This is God's kingdom starting as a mustard seed, now starting to grow in ways that people would never comprehend or imagine. So I wanted to break down a couple things, then we're going to zero in a little bit on Saul this morning because he's a key figure for the rest of the book of Acts. All right, so God doesn't always accomplish miracle or use miracles to accomplish his purposes, but when he does, they make a difference. They get noticed. Um, and I noticed four major miracles in Acts 9. You could probably go deeper and even like note other miraculous things that happened. But I noticed that Saul was changed. seems like a pretty big miracle that he started the chapter breathing murderous threats against Christians and ended the chapter under threat himself because he's such a bold proclaimer of the gospel, right? So that's a miracle. Then we have, of course, Ananias, like hearing from this vision and going giving Saul his sight back. We have Aeneas, who walked, who was lame, and then his whole city trusted in the Lord. Then you have Tabitha, who was raised from the dead. All of these things are evidence that the expansion of the faith in this time was not a function of like how good the church was doing or how how well the believers had their story straight or whatever. This was God's power working through people. The miracles that were happening were rapidly increasing uh, the, the number of believers. And as that started to multiply, um, we eventually realized that the power of God was at work. Like there's that one statement in the middle of this chapter I really like where it said, with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, their numbers continued to grow. Um, And that's what happens when a church is under the power of the Holy Spirit, when we're filled with the Spirit, when we're walking in obedience to the Spirit. There's no no way to help, but miracles will happen and God will start to move in ways that people wouldn't be able to plan for or expect. Okay, So the miracle of Saul's conversion has a backstory that goes back to the time of Stephen. And I wanted to zoom in on that because here's what's dangerous for those of us who are used to sitting in church. And that is that we can hear all this stuff, but somehow miss the miracle and miss the actual plan of God. Okay, so I just want to make sure we don't fall into that same trap. And we're going to look at what Saul almost missed. And then thanks only to the grace of God and the appearance of Jesus on the road to Damascus there, that Saul was able to take a hold of. Okay, so we go back to the killing of Stephen and you remember the scene when Stephen was killed? He was surrounded by the leaders of Israel. So you could imagine the Sanhedrin, maybe there's some other leading figures. In our imagination, maybe these would be people that kind of looked like Gandalf, you know, with special robes or whatever. And they're, they're supposed to be the wise, learned men of, you know, the, the, the people of Israel would come and they would entrust their spiritual souls really to the to the to this group right these are the people that are charged with overseeing it's the elders of the people and Stephen comes and he presents to them the truth and then Stephen looks up to heaven and the elders of the people are so filled with rage that the bible says they covered their ears and started yelling you know i don't know what age you stopped doing that i hope i hope you stopped but Generally, I would associate that with like three-year-olds, maybe four-year-olds, occasionally a really rough-and-go teenager or something, but for the most part, you get over that part of your life, right? And you realize that's generally not a mature way to respond. Well, here, the elders of the people are so upset that they literally shout they can't listen to what Stephen is saying. And guess who was with them? Saul. Saul was approving of Stephen's death. Saul was right there 
as a part of this whole crazy story. If you go back to Acts 7, it says, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven. So he, gave, he gives a speech. He looks up, and he sees this vision of Jesus himself. He saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man seated at the place of honor at God's right hand. It says, and then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. Hey, you don't have to actually do this, but I'm thinking, what would that actually look like for you to do, right? Like, wow, that's, that person is angry. Um, and when you do that, you pretty, much, you, you, pr- you pretty much are signaling that you're not interested in learning anything new, right? For sure, you're signaling that. Um, if you put your hands on your ears and you start shouting and rushing at somebody, you're done with the conversation at that point. And, and I think about how sometimes we're tempted to join that ear-covering crowd. Maybe we don't physically act it out, but in our hearts we say, it doesn't matter what somebody says, I'm not going to listen anymore. And, uh, and that, that's a choice. It's a choice you can make. For those people in that circle, um, it was their choice to be small. Right? The glory of God, think about this, The glory of God, who they had spent their lifetimes learning about and worshiping, was right there. Like, and Stephen was inviting them, hey, look with me at this amazing thing that's unfolding. And they're so angry, they can't see it. Their pride held them back from even being able to see something so amazing. So it was their choice to be small. It was also their choice to stop growing. Right? They, They could have, even if they didn't agree with Stephen, they could have leaned forward and said, hey, Stephen, you brought up some good points Let's meet again, or let's keep talking, or Stephen. We th- but no, the, the anger that rose up in their heart tells us that their faith was not an honest faith. They weren't honestly curious. They, they were selfish. They were prideful, like so many of us can become. It's your choice to be blind. It's your choice to miss out. Right? And that's what all of those leaders in that circle who were so against Stephen, they were all blind. They were all missing out. And it was completely their choice. Now, the, the long-term result of somebody who lives in that condition, like if that's you, if you go, hey, that's me, um, you don't have to admit that out loud, but um, the inevitable result of that is you'll end up angry. Like your life won't work out if that's you. If you're the person that covers your ears and says, I won't listen, in the end, you'll be angry. And, and you'll take your anger out on the people who try to tell you the truth. You become a persecutor. But who, who will you actually be angry at? You're actually angry at yourself because you're your own limitation, right? When you stop listening, you stop growing. You stop being able to see. So Saul was one of these people. And and that anger started building in him to the point where it wasn't just the stoning of Stephen. Like it wasn't like he did that, kind of got it out of his system and went off and lived in peace. What did he do next? He literally started traveling door to door, house to house, looking for people to persecute. And by the time we get to chapter 9, verse 1, it says he is breathing out threats with every breath. His whole life has been consumed. Now, Saul is supposed to be like a spiritual leader of the people. And yet he's so consumed by hate and so consumed by anger, he thinks he's doing it for a righteous cause, but really it's all him. Now, if you walk this way, I would ask you, what are you missing by not looking up? 
Okay, so someone like Stephen sort of shows up in your life and says, here's the truth, and you cover your ears and you say, I'm not going to listen to that person. Okay. By not looking up, what do you miss? What was Saul missing? What did all those guys around the Sanhedrin table, what were they missing? Uh, four things that I can think of, probably a lot more. One is you're missing the most glorious sights imaginable. You're just missing it. I mean, those guys in that moment, they had an opportunity to look at heaven, and none of them saw it. Saying, a few years ago, I took a trip to the Grand Canyon, um, and if you've been there, you know it, and it, it's, it's, it's awe-inspiring, right? And you stand at the, after you kind of get over your fear of heights, or you wonder if the you're not, you know, the, the little fence is actually secure if you can lean on or whatever. You go up to that ledge and, and it's, it's astounding, right? There's really nothing you could even say. It's so big, it's so overwhelming um, that it just, you just want to sit there and look at it. Okay? You just want to be there. So imagine going to the Grand Canyon, which from here, I mean, that's a pretty long haul, right? Fly across the country. Even if you land at the closest airport, you've still got quite a, quite a drive to get to the park, and you've got to walk to the place. And, but imagine you walk up the Grand Canyon with the resolution in your mind, I'm going to keep my eyes closed the whole time. Well, that wouldn't be very smart, like from a safety perspective, but it also, I don't think, would be possible, right? You're in the presence of, like, glory and majesty that will blow your mind. Isn't the whole point to open your eyes? If you close your eyes, why are you even there? And, and I think about how, in many ways, when we start resisting God, when we start thinking we already know what we need to know, we're not going to listen, like in many ways, that's closing our eyes, even when there's glory, like out there to see. So, I don't know, I don't want to walk up to the Grand Canyon or be, have somebody say, hey, there's heaven, and then be so full of myself that I miss it. Right? And yet that's what happens to people. Okay, the other thing you miss, you miss the personal experience of God's love. So when you resist God, God still loves you. Right? We just sang about it. God loved the whole world. He gave his son for you. Like, I mean, the love of God is powerful and amazing and gracious, but you won't feel it because you're covering your ears and shouting and being angry. You'll completely miss what it is to feel richly loved by God. You'll miss your own purpose in life. Think about how close Saul came to missing all of this stuff. Right? To I mean, think if, he had, if Jesus had not intervened on the road to Damascus, what would have ended up happening with Saul? I'm guessing he would have still had some sort of political clout with the Sanhedrin. He probably would have fulfilled his mission in one way or another, and he would have spent the rest of his life persecuting Christians and trying to shut down Christianity. And then he would have gotten to Judgment Day and realized that his whole life was wasted, and he completely missed his purpose. And even more than purpose, the other thing is he would, he would have completely missed the truth. Everything he would have given his time and life and heartbeats for would have all been a lie. You think about that room, that moment when Stephen is up there seeing heaven and Saul and all the other people are persecuting. In that moment, Stephen was willing to embrace reality and all of them were denying it. And really, a closed heart, a hard heart, that's really what a hard heart leads you to. You have to deny reality in order to keep your heart hard. You have to make your world small and your perspective small 
and somehow it's all about you and for a while you can make life make sense that way but eventually it falls apart and eventually you look back at a life wasted so Saul was on that road there was nothing in Saul that was going to change course that's pretty clear that's why a miracle needed to happen okay so as we enter Acts 9 Saul's anger had turned to murderous rage and then Jesus breaks in and I think about the grace of Jesus in that Jesus gave Saul another opportunity to look up now it was a miracle to begin with with Stephen to look up in the first place but in that moment he completely missed it now here comes another opportunity just by the grace of God that Saul would be offered a chance look up I'm gonna shine this light I'm gonna blind you I'm gonna knock you off your horse I'm gonna make this as clear as it could possibly be I need you I want you you're mine let's get on with it and so he says to Saul you know head to the city and you'll get your mission there so I ask you like in that moment did Saul deserve to see the glory Did he deserve to experience the love of God in a personal way or you know get back on track with a life of purpose or find the truth no he didn't deserve any of those things he wasn't asking for any of those things later in his life Saul who was later named Paul wrote these words he wrote God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this it is a gift of God salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done none of us can boast about it we are God's masterpiece he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago so let's say that you know years from now you die and you're up in heaven and you see Saul and you go wow like that's the Apostle Paul I, I've got to go see man Paul I, I heard your testimony back down on earth that was so amazing do you think he will say to you yeah I'm really glad I finally figured it all out like I'm really glad I wised up or I would have missed it that's not really the story right it wasn't like Saul just one day had an epiphany and he figured it out Saul was miraculously converted to Jesus by the power of God and so all the credit for Saul's conversion and then for everything that would happen after that Saul would have to say this is all God's grace had I been left up to if this had just been up to me I would have just been a murdering fool for the whole rest of my life but instead God rescued me from that aimless way and he gave me a new future and a new purpose and it was actually the good works that had been planned long ago Jesus recreated me so all the credit all the glory goes to God when we see this miracle happen you might say Saul didn't need this like in our terminology to be just saved from his sin and that was the case but he needed to be saved from himself right if you would have walked up to the pre-christian Saul probably would have walked up to a guy that didn't think he was sinning a whole lot he thought he had life together he thought he was following the law he pretty much had it down the problem was him it was pride it was it was his self-will without God's grace he would have missed everything so how about you what has God's grace done in your life has God given you an opportunity to look up 
Not everyone has that opportunity come in the form of a miracle, right? I mean, Saul was given a miracle, the light from heaven. Tabitha was given a miracle, risen from the dead. Aeneas was able to walk again. Like sometimes God works miracles that accelerates his plan. But all of us have the opportunity to look at God's truth and say, Lord, I'm willing to soften my heart and look up. I don't want to miss the life I'm actually supposed to be living, the life I was created to live. And what would you trade all of that for? Think about the people who do miss it, which sadly seems like a lot of people. What are they getting in return? Some bad habits they hope they can kick later? Some sorrows in this world? Maybe occasionally some bursts of success in this world, but none of it amounts to anything. The purpose of life is found in looking up. Saying, okay, Lord, I'm willing to listen. Where do you want to send me? What do you want to do with my life? So if you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment, we're, we're about to take communion together, which Jesus gave us as a custom to practice and remember how we were saved, what it took for us to receive the grace of God. You and I don't deserve the credit for our salvation any more than Saul deserved the credit for his There's just a moment when God breaks through in your heart and you finally see reality. And so, Lord, as we enter this final few moments of our service, we want to reflect on your grace. The fact that you would give your life for us, the fact that you would extend your love to us, even when we don't deserve it. And Lord, the fact that you care about us so much that sometimes you reach down from heaven and you shine shine on us or you shake us, you make it so plain. Lord, help us not to be blind. Help us not to choose to miss out. We know that there's a life on the other side of a decision to follow you that is filled with purpose, filled with adventure, filled with meaning, can only be found through you. Lord, I look at the rest of the story of the book of Acts, and here Saul became Paul and becomes the primary character of how things advanced for the gospel from this point forward. What an amazing turnaround that is. Lord, if you could turn Saul you could turn any one of us. And if someone like Saul could become a new creation, certainly I could, certainly you could.